Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. If you've missed our last episode, please, please, please tune in and have a listen. It's without a question that we all, as a community, need to build sustainable ways to continue the momentum around building a just and equitable system for the Black community. The previous episode combines two different segments. The first features a one-on-one with just you and me, and the other segment is a re-airing of Jacqueline Woodson's podcast episode that I pulled from our archives. Please take the time to listen to that episode and refer to the resource page that my team and I put together to help you along in your learning process. To check out all the podcasts, books, and TV show documentary recommendations, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash learn. And it's a landing page where I'm going to be adding to the list as we go. So be sure to check back in every week or so. And if there's a resource that you come across that you find very powerful in a way that really guides people on how to make real changes, please reach out to us at hello at 88cupsofteacom with the resource so we can consider adding it to our list. For our show today, we have award-winning author Daniel Jose Older. Daniel is the New York Times bestselling author of the middle grade history fantasy series, Dactyl Hill Squad, the Bone Street Roomba Urban Fantasy Series, Star Wars Last Shot, and the award-winning young adult series, The Shadow Shaper Cipher, which won the International Latino Book Award and was shortlisted for the Kirkus Prize in Young Readers Literature, the Andre Norton Award, and named one of Esquire's 80 books every person should read. We begin our conversation with how he discovered his creative voice at a young age through drawing, music, and storytelling. We learn about his college days and becoming an EMT to keep him financially stable while working on his craft. We have an honest conversation about the uncertainty of relying on your writing as your main source of income and the moments of instability that it can bring. As you know, I always love talking about finances and money for artists whenever the conversation allows. So I really appreciate Daniel for being so open and so transparent about that. Further into the conversation, Daniel talks about his path to becoming a published author, pushing past rejection and the importance of mentorship and community during this time. He shares plotting and character development tips for writing a series and the important role that inspirational research plays when crafting your stories. Later, we talk about how writing is about listening to yourself and to those around you and being intentional about knowing when to start and stop your story and why it's crucial to understand what's most important in your story so you can be committed to the things that matter the most and be flexible to change other parts to ultimately get to the heart of the story. Just a quick note, we recorded this conversation the first week of March. And now let's jump right in. Hey, everyone. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited. We have Daniel Jose Older with us today. Daniel, how are you? Hey, I'm great. I'm very happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. I was listening this morning over breakfast to Cassandra Clare's episode, and it's so good. You're so sweet. Thank you. This is a great show. This is so necessary, this conversation that you are having. They should be having it in MFA programs all over the country, is all I'm saying. That's very kind. Thank you so much. I always want to backtrack and just start off with the earliest memory that you have of storytelling as far back as you possibly can. Those are really fun. 
fun. Mm, mm, yeah, I love that you asked that because it's such a great question. I actually think mine is Return of the Jedi. Whoa. <laughs> it came out when I was three years old, and I very vividly remember being in the movie theater and seeing it and being terrified of the rancor <laughs> and having to leave the theater whenever it happened, but also coming back in immediately and like going back to the movie again and again, even though it scared the crap out of me. And But I just remember like also loving it so much and like even being terrified and being so excited and still to this day i think back on it as just one of the great storytelling feats of our time and i love it so much and that's it like that's that's the beginning for me wow incredible and isn't it crazy that now you're a part of that franchise yes it is that that's what makes it even like how how like, the hell the other thing i remember is seeing the specials on tv they would do the behind the scenes specials and like seeing them because one of the first things I ever wanted to do was make monsters like in the creature shop because mm-hmm. that seemed like the coolest thing ever. And just watching them like sculpt the, the faces, you know, and then apply the latex and the foam and all that stuff was like so cool to me. And I and I and I made monsters when I was a kid. I would make them out of Play-Doh. What? I would, you know, put latex covering on them like I was just that invested. So, yes, being in a position now where I get to create those monsters and like write those stories. It's the coolest thing ever. Before we get into the actual muddiness of writing and all good and bad that comes with mm-hmm. it, how then were you incorporating storytelling into your life as a child growing up and how supportive was your family about it? Mm, they were, as you can already tell, they were very supportive because <laughs> they put up with latex. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, they, they bought it for me. They were like taking me through the steps of it. They were super great about Aww. that. It's interesting. The next creative job that I really wanted to do, for some reason, I got really obsessed with politics mm. and I really wanted to be a political cartoonist. Like that was wow. like the tip top job for me. And my parents are really supportive. My mom used to take me to the library and we would look up like old newspaper articles on the microfiche about Watergate. And I got like obsessed with Watergate as a kid. <laughs> That's super weird. No, like, but so again, brilliant. like my parents are really like about that. It was great. It was super great. You know, so I wanted to be a political cartoonist. And I actually remember very clearly in a good way, my dad had this really interesting critique once of a cartoon that I did when I was like doing my political cartoons. He was like, you know, you're just kind of like you're reframing what happened. You're saying what happened in a funny way, but like you're not taking any kind of opinion on it. Right. You're not saying anything about it. You're just saying that it happened. And he was like, you know, like, what if you push it further and like, you know, like tell us like what you feel about it. And like, it's such a deep thing to say to a kid. And, And I love that he said it to me. Like it didn't come across mean or like as a shutdown or anything. He was like pushing me lovingly, pushing me to go further and to like really make a statement instead of just kind of like restate the facts. Is he an artist or was he an artist? Uh, No, he's a city planner. (laughs) He sounds like a professor, like knowing how to critique art. Exactly. And well, he's a nerd. So I'll give him that. You know, he like that's where I got my nerdiness. Like he's the the sci-fi guy in the family for sure. And my mom is a Spanish professor. So and she was very like into the, you know, the magical realism side of literature. So between the two of them, that's where a lot of stuff comes from. Wow. Do you have siblings (laughs) or are you the only child? I have a sister who's also a writer, Malka Older. She has a a sci-fi series out called Infomocracy. Wow. Okay. So this whole family has been incredibly supportive of you. And are we talking? So you were able to actually draw? Yeah, cartooning was my first like artistic oh. love. So I was always drawing. I mean, I had like a, a pad of paper and a pen with me everywhere I went wow. constantly. We would go to plays. I remember we would go to plays a lot at the school my mom taught at. And, you know, actually Richard III 
is probably my second major storytelling moment. And I was like pretty young when we went to that. And I still think about it. I mean, it's my favorite Shakespeare play. So you were exposed to a lot of good shit, good shit, but mind stimulating things that really promoted learning, education, absorbing, reflecting. And also Mm -hmm. you had a safe space where your opinion was valued and learning how to actually harness your voice at a very early age. Yes, absolutely. What did you study in college? You know, I loved fantasy and and sci-fi and I did read it a bunch as a kid. I also loved Greek mythology a lot. But I also do remember kind of like at some point, you know, I didn't have the analysis for it at the time, but there was a very clear moment where it just felt like, you know, not seeing myself in those books really was like a turnoff. Like it really did feel almost like a betrayal, you know, Mm. and like somewhere in my young mind, like understanding that this was a genre that didn't love me back as much as I loved it, you know, and that heartbreak and not having language for that. You know, I was a smart kid, but I didn't have that analysis and I didn't know what it meant. I just knew I wasn't there and how sad that was. Because I also remember like very distinctly finding some kind of solace for that later on, especially like in college, you know, in like the more nonfiction greats of the world, like Bell Hooks, James Baldwin, Eduardo Galeano, you know, people who were telling like the stark truth about the world. Mm -hmm. And it felt so refreshing after like, feeling like I'd been lied to by a lot of the writers that I had admired, you know, people who weren't not the lie of like fantasy, but the lie of not including the rest of the world (laughs) beyond this tiny little sliver of like white people, you know, in literature, that's a lie, right? Like that's a, that's a lie that like genre literature has been perpetuating for generations and generations for the most part. And it hurts, you know, and it turns people away. And so like, I turned away and I found people who would tell me the truth. And those were like the nonfiction greats, you know, to me. Mm-hmm. And that's really what happened in college is I like just really steeped myself in in that like power analysis and race and history and all that other stuff, you know, to just find something that felt like the truth. So for you, was it you already knowing internally just from reading, even in your own quiet spaces, or was it something outside that affected you? I think for me, it wasn't ever like such a concrete and clear moment. It was more like a slow turning away and then kind of being like, why did that happen? Because it wasn't conscious so much as like, this isn't for me. You know, like the understanding was like a gradual acceptance. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because we grew up like the only Latinx family that I knew of and the only Jewish family also, both. In an Irish part of Boston. Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) And they just, they weren't trying to have Latin folks there, you know, or whatever we were to them, we had to run. How about safety-wise, not just for you as a kid, but family, like you and your sister, your mom and dad? I mean, it was intense. Like, it was on the one hand, like, we had great neighbors, and there were people that embraced us a lot. And on the other hand, like, we were very aware of that dynamic kind of playing out, like, and... You know, we just kind of treated it carefully and and did what we had to do, and and it was all right. Oh, my gosh. So that absolutely affected your voice and your perspective overall and everything that you create in your stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, so segueing into then schooling, can you give us like a snapshot, an overview of that? Storytelling was always it. I just didn't know what medium yet, which I'm really glad. When I got to college, like... I took a year off, um, actually moved to San Francisco for like uh, a couple months. I was a bike messenger and I worked at Mel's Drive-In on Lombard oh, cool. as, a, as a waiter. Yeah, for the graveyard shift. It was awesome. And it was also like really weird and crazy. It was great. <laughs> great for stories. And yeah, and at that time, actually, specifically, I was thinking maybe I'll be a novelist, you know, and I was writing a lot. And then I got to college the next year 
And I was like, all right, let me just try a little bit of everything. I remember my first semester, I think I took animal behavior. I took a video what? class. You know, I took journalism, literary journalism. Like, I was just all over the map, which is what you should do, in my opinion. Yes. Like, everyone should do what they want. I just know, like, it, for me, it was really good to scatter myself. And that held throughout most of the, the time I was there. I took classes in a very wide variety of stuff. Whatever piqued my interest, I would do it. There. And I studied music there. I ended up doing a, a semester abroad in Havana, actually, what? to study Cuban music. Yeah, which and looked up some of my own family members, and that was amazing. One of the jazz greats, Youssef Latif, who passed away a couple of years ago. At that time, he was teaching there in the five college area, so I took classes with him and studied composition and other things. It was, wow. you know, I just really tried to like learn as much as I could, and and I actually left my degrees in social science back to the politics, right? Because I, I felt like. I had the writing craft pretty like down. I was very comfortable writing and I really wanted to just learn as much as I could about the world and, and understand power and history so that whatever it was I decided to tell stories about, I would have some kind of foundation and analysis behind it. Because, you know, again, like I felt comfortable writing. So I wanted to push myself. The last thing I did, though, before I graduated, yeah. I took the month long intensive EMT course and I got my license as an EMT. What? And that was my big plan for survival, you know, after I left, because I didn't have any expectation of getting a well-paying creative job right out the gate. And that is what I ended up doing for the next 10 years is becoming a paramedic in New York City. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, hold on. I am curious. Have you ever thought of gravitating towards graphic novels? We'll get to the music thing, too. But a similar thing happened where it's like there's a level where you have to start really dedicating yourself to getting the production skills down, both with, I think, mm -hmm. graphic work and with music that just so disinterests me <laughs> deeply. <laughs> and like with writing, you literally like you don't have to do that. You have to get your craft down. It's all craft. And then someone else turns it into a book. You know what I mean? Like, right. It's such a, I never thought of it this way, but it really is. That's what happened with music, because as I'm sure we'll get to in my 20s, most of the time when I was a paramedic, I was also doing music as my main creative output. And A, I got tired of trying to wrangle musicians to get places. And B, I got tired of trying to get people to shows because then it was like gigging. And then C, when it wasn't either of those things, it was I was making soundtracks for like choreographers and like puppeteers and like random like independent, like really random shit. And, um, but you know, people with no budget, people who could wow. barely pay me and certainly couldn't pay for production. So I was like trying to make a home studio and bring in people to record them and all this bullshit that I did not enjoy. It's amazing shit. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm so happy people do that and have that skill. It's just not me. And so that's when I became a writer was literally being like, I'm tired of this other shit. Like, I just want to sit down and tell stories. And I was like, oh shit, if I just have like my laptop, and my story, that's writing. Like, it's so raw. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I don't have to deal with all that other bullshit, which is, like, great that other people do it again. like. But I still play music. I'm learning piano right now. Oh. Mostly I'm a bass player and a guitarist. Like, I'm learning piano for fun. I'm not good at it. You know, one day I hope to be. Who knows? Oh I still draw all the time. I keep notebooks because that's my best way to, like, write books is by drawing things first. When I get stuck on a character or a monster, I draw it. Do you see children's books the same way you see graphic novels then? I don't know. I just did an event with Isaac Fitzgerald who, who wrote a children's book called How to Be a Pirate. And it's so cool. And he was like, have you ever thought about writing a children's book? And, and I have. Like, It could happen. I'm going to say this. It could happen. Who knows? I keep a very close pulse on my listeners and readers, and we have a private Facebook group. And I've been seeing a lot of talk about finances, all right? A lot of listeners are trying to make writing their main 
support system. And I know there are quite a lot of authors who don't agree with that. And if you don't agree with it, amazing, I'd love to hear your point of view. Again, it's just perspective. And just anything that you can share about surviving as somebody who wants to write and loves creativity and needs to put your stories out in the world? First of all, there's no easy answers. I don't believe that there's a right or wrong because just careers are so unique. Mm -hmm. Every career is like a snowflake. Like each one is absolutely different. Just like create a process, you know, career process, which is related, but not exactly the same. They overlap, right? You have to take into account who you are, what your needs are, what your situation is. You have to define success for yourself before it happens to you Mm. (laughs) or doesn't because God forbid it does. And you don't even realize it because you've been looking at someone else's definition of success and trying to aim for that. Meanwhile, you've actually hit all your internal goals that you haven't really spoken out loud and and you don't even know it or you're not celebrating Mm -hmm. because you're trying to be Stephen King when you actually should be you, you know, and that's, that's tragic to me. Like, that's so sad. Like the idea that someone could be like succeeding and not even realize it because they haven't bothered to sit down and really have that conversation with themselves or with their loved ones. You know, hopefully you have people, friends or family who can be that accountability partner and be someone that you can be honest with, whether again, whether it's a writing group or because that's that's a big part of it to me is like having that support system, not just financially, but just in terms of honesty, Mm. having, you know, critique partners like people who will check you, people you can go to with questions about the industry or about craft, like all that really matters. And sometimes you get it online. Sometimes you get it in whatever education program you went to or if you form a writer's group, whatever it is, you know. They don't have to be writers. They can just be other creative people, but you have to find it. For me, it was this combination. I think like every major life move you make, it's like there's a part of it that is gut instinct and there's a part of it that is like having to be very practical Capricorn and like, you know, really have like make decisions. It's really both like people think I sold a book and then quit my job. And the reality is I put in my notice to leave and then I sold a book and Yes, that was a little dangerous. Mm -hmm. I also knew like I was in an MFA program at the time. I waited 10 years after my undergrad to go to the MFA program because it wasn't something I felt, you know, was like real necessary. Like as a writer, you don't need an MFA. If you want to teach, an MFA really helps Mm -hmm. you. And so that was a strategic choice I made. Like that was a good investment, like to bridge the gap between being a full-time paramedic and being a full-time writer was being able to have something like teaching that I figured I'd be able to do, you know, in different kind of scattered potentially ways, right? Because yeah. MFA programs, especially low residency ones, you know, you could teach for like a 10-day swing and then have students along the way that you can work with, you know, and it's not necessarily like a full-time 40 hours a week type game. Yes. So there was that, you know, I did know that like my family would be able to have my back to a certain extent, you know, so I certainly like coming from a middle-class background, having that support made a difference in my being able to take that leap away from the ambulance, you know, and that's really important that we're honest about privilege and things like that, because that's absolutely not the case for everybody. So that's a part of my story, you know, but I didn't only rely on that. And it was more like that was peace of mind that I knew like, okay, things won't be a total disaster, hopefully, you know, at least not right away. (laughs) And there's that, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Right. But ultimately it was that combination. I had been on the ambulance for 10 years. I didn't want to keep doing it. And I knew I had to make certain moves. And I'd also, I understood the industry to a certain extent. I'd been, you know, studying publishing and what that meant. And, you know, I had a sense of what might or might not happen. And again, it wasn't like, I'm just going to be a writer. Like, I'm just going to quit and be a writer. It was like, I was writing for let's see, about three or four years before I left the ambulance. 
And so things were in place to some extent, right? And I, I just think that's a piece of it. But you can't just be straight up cold strategic and you can't just be like straight up, oh, it's going to be all right. Let me just plunge. Like right. it's, it's a combination of those things. And that's the hardest part. Yes. Finances are stressful, period. Let me give you an example. I took a year off last year and I had been writing at that point for 10 years. So it was my 10th year as a writer, not publishing, mind you, writing. I knew that I needed to stop writing for a minute mm-hmm. and just be. Now, I worked hard. I didn't like not work at all, right? I still did events. I already I had two books that were coming out last year, so they came out, and that's cool. So it's not like I just dropped everything and like lived on a mountain for a year. <laughs> I was busy as shit, and I was editing <laughs> books, other things. You know, I was doing a lot. But what I didn't do was like start a new book. Mm. And for me, like I love writing. Like it's it's something that I just do a lot, no matter what. You know, whether the other reason I did it was because I realized like at the beginning of that year. So last January, I realized I was coming to the end of all of my contracts. And for the first time in like seven years or something, I wasn't going to be under contract once I finished that book that I was finishing up in January. And so I did it and I put it down and I put everything down instead of doing what my Capricorn has loved doing, which is picking up another project and starting <laughs> up something new. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, And I needed to do that. Like that was so important. And the reason I did it wasn't because of anything except for the fact that I was paying attention to what the world and my own like inner self was telling me. And that that's not a skill we're taught to cultivate, mm-hmm. but that's so important. And I'm so glad I did it because I needed to look at my career and I needed to put my creative energy into my own career instead of my books mm-hmm. for once and see what happened then. And Damn. I needed to make changes. I ended up getting a new agent <gasps> last year. I ended up getting a new publisher last year. Like a lot of things oh. are changing in my career. And that's because I had to step back and make those decisions without being in the middle of writing a book or in the middle of writing anything else. I just had to stop. Did you have fear? Because I got chills when hearing like the whole situation about the year off. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was a mix as it, I think always is of like fear and excitement, right? It's like, absolutely like, holy shit. And I mean, I'll be very honest with you. Like it, it, of course, like I took a hit in my finances because of that. And that shit was terrifying because yes, I was like, you know, I'm about to be 40 and I'm trying to like make ends meet in different ways. And like, and then I also had to be like, okay, and I'm a freelancer. And I've just, I had to remind myself that that happened, like that I stopped writing and that that's, that matters. You know, like, oh, like things are looking this way for a reason. And it's a reason that I chose. And so now, okay, like, how am I going to figure out how to do what I need to do? What extra gigs am I going to pull on the side? Or what different, you know, resources do I have to figure this out? And, you know, I did. But that's not to say it was like, everything is great. I'm following my path. Right. No, it was terrifying. There were moments when both terror and shame yes. is a real thing we have yes. to talk about. Because this fucked up capitalist system will tell you that you are wrong, you know, for struggling, right? Yes. Like, like it's yes. so damaging when, when you've been doing everything the right way, whatever that means. Yes. And you've been doing, you know, or you're someone who's successful. You know, I, I consider myself successful and a lot of people call me successful or whatever. And that doesn't mean that there aren't moments when like things aren't working and like, like ends aren't being met and you got to figure this out. And it's hard. And one of the hardest parts is the game that we play in our own heads of being like, on top of the fact that you're now trying to like make really important decisions about survival and thriving, you're also feeling a way towards yourself for even being in this position. And then you got to get over that shame and that fear and everything else to be able to make decisions that make sense. And that sometimes feel backwards, right? Like to stop writing feels backwards unless you 
allow yourself the grace to do that and to step away and to be calm and to be still and to realize that that is what you have to do. And look, I'm in a much better because I did that. And if I hadn't, I would probably just be in an okay place, right? <laughs> and that matters. I love that you mentioned that, that the outcome in the end from the risks that you took and yes. all of that internal thinking that society has put on us, shame and fear and all of that, it ended up, you came out in a much better place on the other side. Right. Did you have people like a family that you needed to discuss this decision with? Totally. I think there's two parts, right? There's like with everything we've been talking about, there's the practical level, like, you know, what are the different strategies we're going to use? And and then there's the sort of deeper level of like, how are we going to move through the different possibilities of what this might bring, right? right? And just being able to be really honest about that with, you know, whoever your partner is or whoever your family or community is, is, first of all, there's a temptation always with the artist. Society has very often fed us very mm. negative ideas of what artistry is and what it means to be an artist, mm. a working artist, a successful artist. You know, it was so I think we're just getting past that really dangerous stereotype of like the lone dude in the woods who doesn't <laughs> you know, relate to other people and Salinger. Right. Like yeah. basically Salinger <laughs> who like, per, you know, preys on people, first of all, like younger women and is disgusting on, on all these levels and sexist. And, you know, and like writes a bunch of books that he keeps in a vault and is a genius and all this fucked up shit that's like really bad, yeah. like bad, unhealthy, dangerous, abusive. All this stuff that, that doesn't have to be true. Like. We can write great books and tell great stories and not be like recluses in the woods. We could also be recluses in the woods and do that. I'm not saying we can't. And definitely, like, it's great to stay home. Yes. <laughs> but also, like, be a human being yes. to people around you and be a caring person and be compassionate, you know, is, are important things. And and partially because of social media and because of podcasts like yours and because, like, people having very honest conversations we're loosening that tight hold of that idea of like the lone alcoholic writer yeah. that has had a hold on us for so long. And as we're doing that, we have to, part of that work is to be able to have difficult, honest conversations about yes. what we're talking about right now, about finances, about stability, about instability, you know, and the fact that for a freelancer, for an artist, instability and stability very often go hand in hand. And that's hard to understand until you've lived it, right? Like, until you face that roller coaster and understood that, like, okay, things being difficult right now does not mean things are always difficult. And the way money works in publishing, especially, and in most entertainment industries, they'll drop on you in a big chunk and then be gone for two years. And then suddenly it'll show up again. And that can feel really fucked up yeah. because we're so used to the model of, like, you know, biweekly check mm -hmm. that we're used to and everything else. And like, So it can feel like instability, like a, a long-term instability, when really it's a momentary instability. So all those conversations have to be had, and, and you have to be honest and upfront about them, and, and including, like, the truth of, like, of not being certain and what that means and how you're going to manage that. That's hard. Okay. You are the perfect person to talk to about this. I know you mentioned that you're approaching 40. You're not 40 yet. I'm 40 now. How old were you, if you don't mind me asking, did you start publishing your first book? My first book came out from a small press when I was 32. Okay. And my first major press debut was 35. Okay, great. So I would love if you can share anything just from your gut, your guttural reaction about age, about timelines and deadlines for those who are truly on the cusp of wanting to give up and dealing with depression because of all these stigmas. We can't ignore that there is a very gender dynamic to this. It's not a mistake that it's more women that are talking about this because like patriarchy is 
built in a way that it creates that exact stigma, specifically, I think, and originally about beauty yes. and concepts of beauty and what that means and all that bullshit. And then, but I think that carries over into everything, right? Like, logically, none of this shit makes sense. It's completely nonsensical, like at its root, to think that there's like an expiration date on being a writer because being a writer, all you need is a brain. Yeah. Like literally, right? Like you can write if you don't have hands, you can write if you can't speak. There are ways to write and because of technology, especially. Mm. It's not gymnastics. It's not dancing. It's not cheerleading. None of those things apply. But because of patriarchy, especially, and because also I think of very like westernized ideas of time and, and binary systems and other bullshit that has deeply infected how we see the world because we live in this society, you know, that's that has taken root. And we have to be very aware of like, just how dangerous those ideas are and, and how nonsensical they are. But you know what? Like insecurity doesn't make sense. Fear doesn't make sense. And that's true. Like that doesn't make them go away. They're still there, even though we're like, this shit doesn't make sense. Yeah. It means we still have to look at them for what they are and understand that. So all of that is a big piece of it. You know, the other piece is there's a lot of writers who started at 50 and older and have like great publishing careers. Walter Mosley comes to mind. I think he started writing in his 40s, didn't start publishing until he was about 50-something, and has, like, 50 books out. Wow. And he's, like, 65 or something. Like, Damn. he's, you know, not that old. So there's that. There's a lot of examples like that. There's women examples, too. I think Ursula Le Guin started well into her 40s, if not older. And, of course, she's a grandmaster. Mm -hmm. You know, she was, like, one of the greats, for sure. So there's there's that. There's a lot of examples. If you go on Twitter... And say, like, I feel old yeah. and I, I wonder if I should give up. A hundred people will tell you great examples of, of, of writers who didn't, including themselves. That's the truth. I started writing at 29. That was at the end of, like, my 20s. And I, I was, like I said, fed up with trying to wrangle musicians. Yeah. So I said, let me try this writing a book thing. This is, like, the most raw and distilled form of storytelling I can find. And that was really the the idea behind it and the fire behind it. And so I wrote that book. I wrote Shadow Shaper submitted it everywhere I could think of it to every agent I could find online. And I got rejected by all of them. Um, and most of them didn't even respond. That book was rejected 40 times. What? Yeah. And meanwhile, I sent it snail mail to Cheryl Klein at Scholastic because she was the only person, only editor I could find who was taking non-agented submissions. Didn't hear anything from her for like a year. And then she was like, hey, I was, oh, this is great. Like, can I read some more? <laughs> I was like, ah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and in the meanwhile, I was getting rejected, getting rejected. I took a short story class and ended up finding a mentor there, Cherie Renee Thomas, who is amazing, and learned a lot from her and uh, started submitting those short stories. All of them got rejected constantly, over and over. Finally started to get a little bit of traction in very small online magazines and then a little bit bigger and meanwhile, like Cheryl would get back to me every like six months and be like, hey, oh, can I read a couple more chapters? And I'd send a little more. <laughs> and so the whole process, let's see, I started Shadow Shaper in 2009. I didn't get the acceptance from Scholastic until October of 2012. Wow. Now, mind you, this was before um, We Need Diverse Books and everything else. And wow. very clear that that was also a part of it. Like it wasn't a thing, you know, to write a fantasy book with a black girl on the front, you know, a Latinx girl with Latinx mythology around her and all this stuff happening. 
there wasn't a lot out there like that. Wow. And editors and agents, I think, were looking at it and making the very racist calculation that our people don't read or whatever and just being like, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. I would get like, we don't know how to sell this and I'm not sure where, the, where there's room in the market. All that bullshit that they would say to us, they would say it online. So, you know, it's a happy ending. Yes, absolutely. That is the happy ending. Look at your stories, your worlds that you've created through your voice and your lens has connected and resonated with so many people mm. to the point that it's then shaped them as well and contributed to who they've become as storytellers if those readers do end up choosing to become writers as well. And you can see the trickle effect. It's incredible what you've been doing. That's real. Do you mind if I can play one of our listeners' questions for you? Is that all right? Please do. Yeah, go ahead. This question is from Mr. Daniel Jose Older. My name is Chisa Monyuku, and I'm a big fan of the Shadow Shaper series, both the novels and novellas. So my question is, as you were plotting out the character development, did you go novel by novel, or did you outline the whole uh, narrative arc from all the stories as you focused on the character development? First of all, let me say this, because I feel like people don't know about the novellas enough, and I'm really happy he pointed them out. They come in between book one and book two, so they take place after Shadow Shaper, before Shadow House Fall. There's two of them. One is called Ghost Girl in the Corner, and the other is called Dead Light March, and they're available as eBooks for a dollar, you know, on Amazon oh, and all cool. that. I'm really proud of them. Like they're they're really weird and interesting to me. Like ways to tell a sort of a side story that's its own story. So it follows some of the some of the characters who are periphery to Sierra and her group of friends, and it builds the world and it sets up things that happen in the second book and everything after that. So, but you know, eBooks like if it's just eBook, it like. It doesn't get as much play and, it, you know, whatever. So I'm really happy he read them because I'm really proud of them. So let's start there. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so Shadow as I've been talking about, right, it was hard to sell. And even when we did finally sell it, they only bought it as a single book. So it wasn't originally slated to be a trilogy. Wow. And I was like, oh, man, I really wanted it to be. But I didn't know if it ever would be when we sold it. So And I, as I was finishing it, that still wasn't clear. I don't think we sold the other two books for a while, even after it was out. I don't remember when we did that deal, but it certainly wasn't a given. Mm -hmm. So I wrote Shadow Shaper knowing that, which is to say not knowing what would happen next and if there would be a next. And so there was no long-term plan, except it was always a big world to me and there was always room to play more. Really what I did was the sorrows were to me like a big mechanism to put like a thread that I put in there in part to pull. Part of their function is I wanted the bad guy situation to be more complex than just this one evil dude, right? Like, so he has backers and they have their own complicated desires and needs and, and history and it's connected to Sierra's. So some of that was just that. I just like more complicated bad guy stuff happening. And some of it was that I knew that should I have the opportunity to write more, I would need some kind of threads to pull. And that's really what the sorrows function was. And so when it did happen, First of all, I was at a point where I wasn't totally sure it would work when they finally came around and were like, yeah, we want two more books. I really had to stop and have a conversation with myself. It wasn't a given to me, even though originally I wanted it. And I very distinctly remember taking a walk in Prospect Park, which is where a lot of things happen in all my books, because <laughs> that's you know where you go in Brooklyn to practice new spirit type magic when you have it. <laughs> and I was walking through the park and I was like, you know, I, I checked in with myself and I really specifically like checked in with Sierra. 
the character mm-hmm. in my mind. And I was like, do you have more in you? Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to keep going? Because we can stop. Like, I, you know, we can figure out another series to write or whatever. But do you want to keep going? And she was like, hell yeah, let's do this shit. And I was like, all right, bet, let's do it. Fuck it. You know, we in. Cool. And once I knew that, like, it was like, all right, we're doing this. And then, like I said, it was going back to that thread that I had left myself very intentionally and pulling it and seeing where that went historically in the series, like what the backstory and the mythology was, and then how that would affect the, the, the events of the present tense. Wow. Okay. How was the research process like this? I'm just assuming it's like a lot of heavy lifting, I'm assuming. And of course- No. No? Wait, what? No, because I made it all up. <laughs> you didn't pull from anything, even though you made it up. Oh, I see what you mean. So that's a great question. And and you're totally right. It's so interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way until I got to visit Skywalker Ranch, which is out. I know. It's the coolest place on earth. Oh, my God. All right. Show off. Okay. I know. It's a total. It's not even a humble brag. <laughs> I'm like, okay, flip that hair now. All right. <laughs> yes, correct. If I had any, I would flip it. I'm flipping, I'm flipping my beard hair. <laughs> There's a full on brag. It was one of the coolest things that I've ever gotten to do as a creative person because they brought us out for the Star Wars thing I'm working on. It is a place that is basically built for creativity and you can feel it in the rocks and in the buildings and in the trees around you and in the wild turkeys that are running around the property. <laughs> it's the magic place. And, you know, George Lucas built it yes. for that express purpose, you know, and he imbued it with that intentionality and it is alive with that. But the best part, I think there's so many. There's a library that he built there, and it's built out of redwoods. So it sort of glows, like it's a warm glow. It's like built in this way that feels like a a small church. And it has like a spiral staircase going up to an upper level that wraps around the side. And it has like just, it's so beautiful. But what it is, is an inspiration library, not a research library. And when they said that, I had never even conceived of such a thing being possible but it's where they go when they're gonna do a new star wars movie they just go and they pour through these books of of different cultures and and warfare types and types of archaeology and astrology everything you know it just has everything and a lot of picture books but also a lot of you know mythology everything and you can actually they have like the books in there with like this they still have the little um note cards and post-it notes that the designers you know, left so they could go wow. back to, so they could build like, you know, Crate or Dagobah or whatever. Like it's, that, it's so cool. So it's a holy place. But the point is, inspirational research is it's, is a thing, like you just said. And and it's, it's sometimes it's that I don't even think of it as research because I wrote this one series called Dactyl Hill Squad, right? Yes. Which is about, right. So it's about the Civil War. And I, I ended up getting totally obsessed with like factual research about the Civil War. Turned out it's a really fascinating era. Who knew? No, obviously. <laughs> there's so much. Like there's so many books out. And and I would just go down all these rabbit holes and I just got so fascinated with it. But it was very clearly like I knew I had to build this world with a lot of detail about the era because that's what brings stuff to life. And then I also just enjoyed it and I found it fascinating. With Shadow Shaper, it was a very different thing because like you said, it's a spiritual process. It's a spiritual book. And it's about, you know, the community of Brooklyn that at the time I lived in. Another piece of it, and and this is kind of why I don't even think of it as research, but it absolutely is. My spiritual practice involves ancestor work. I'm a santero and we have an altar in the house for our ancestors. They get coffee when I make coffee. They get food when we cook. And that's actually a big piece of like what went into Shadow Shaper as like a founding kind of idea behind it. One part of it was like that very thing of like, I know my ancestors to be entities that have held me up and 
got me here yes. and support me and keep me alive. Yes. You know what I mean? And like, they're why I'm thriving in part. And that matters. But to hear literature tell it, they're always trying to kill us and eat our brains and shit. And like, that's not my experience of ancestors. <laughs> and so like yes. in Shadow Shaper, like, the spirits around Sierra like very literally lift her up and save her life and like are there for her in different ways and protect her. I needed that story to be out in the world because we're just so used to having this terrible view of ghosts as yes. just something that kills us, you know? And so that's important. Hit us with the most difficult, challenging, heartbreaking time and moment in your life. But also from there, how you were able to get yourself out of it because a lot of people are going through tough times right now and just want them to feel a little bit less alone. Well, mine coincided with <laughs> the election, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. And that, but that also like just magnified it, right? I was just going through a really hard breakup and it was terrible. And, you know, and then watching like trauma play out every night on the news. I know for myself, like, I, like I've been talking about, I'm a big politics nerd and a news buff. I was raised that way. Well, political cartoons, yes. Exactly. And that's still true. Like, and, and up until that point, I would, you know, like it wasn't always good news, but I just, the news was like, that was part of, I would just relax. Not relax, <laughs> but that was one of the things I would do a lot was like, listen to the news, you know, yeah. and like that became such a, particularly in that moment, just such a fraught and painful thing. And it has been since, you know, like I still listen to the news a lot, but like, it's like you have to go in on guard yep. much more. So I look, it's always been fucked up. This country has always been fucked up and there's always been problems and things that hit the news and uh, right. But it's heightened so much and it's just reached the daily newscast in such a different way. And so in the midst of going through just the difficulty and the strain of that personal challenge, having that happen in the whole country on another level, too, and having it magnified. Now, I don't want to say my, my breakup itself was as bad as the election, right? It wasn't that bad. It was just hard. And, and I think every time our heart breaks, there's one way in which we grow and, and become better. And there's one way in which we feel like we're shrinking and becoming worse. Mm -hmm. And it's like surgery, right? Like you have to get cut to get healed. Yeah. And sometimes that's the only way forward, you know? So like hard as that time was, like I, I do still look back on it and I'm like, look, that made me the man I am. I think the hardest part was thinking that I was sort of somewhere beyond that before it happened. Mm -hmm. And then when it happened, realizing I'm not, like I still have a lot of lessons to learn. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know what I mean? Like it's arrogant to think you don't. I know, I know now it's, I still do, even after that, of course. I think I had hoped they weren't be as hard lessons. <laughs> I guess you can say the growth from that. How are you overall? I'm really good. I feel like um, as much as like things in the world are still falling apart yeah. <laughs> inside, I'm really good, better than I've ever been. And just happy, you know, in a very happy relationship, thriving in the ways that I've wanted to thrive for a long time. And, and as much as I have been thriving all along, there's different kinds of thriving, right? And yep. I feel like I'm thriving in a way that's harmonious yes. that I haven't been able to do until now. And that's, you know, because of a lot of the hard work and the struggle, you know, that I've been through. And it's amazing to look back. And it comes back a lot to something I say when we're talking about craft a lot. When I get asked that question, the answer is listening, right? Like at the end of the day, like there's a lot of answers. And I wrote a, a BuzzFeed piece about it in part because I got asked it all the time. Mm. It's called 12 Fundamentals of Writing the Other and the Self. So there's a lot to say there, but really it's about listening. If you can't listen to yourself and to the people around you and to the people that you're trying to write about, 
you know, you'll fail. And that's true, like whether or not you're writing the other or not, whatever that means. Like it's true when you're writing, you know, in your journal. Like if you're not listening to yourself when you're writing in your journal, it'll it won't do you any good. You're just gonna be writing bullshit. Yeah. At the end of the day, writing is about listening. Yes. Just like playing music is about listening. You know, like the best musicians and it's not how fast their fingers move. It's about like, can you shut the fuck up yes. and hear what the band is playing so that you can be in conversation with it instead of just like talking your shit, which is a different thing, you know? Yep. And that's what it is. Like, that's what it comes back to. That's craft. That's the moment when I stopped writing for the year last year was because I listened. That's, you know, the, where I'm at right now in my like balanced, healthy life as much as I can be, even while the world is falling apart yeah. is because I've taught myself and learned from the hard lessons to listen to what the world is trying to tell me and to what my deeper self is trying to tell me. Yes, that was so beautiful how you put that together. All right, seriously, this is one of the best conversations I've had and I had such a great time with you. I'm going to wrap this up with two or three rapid fire questions. It'll be super fast. Sure. What is the best advice you've ever received? It could be about writing or life in general. And if you are a mentor, what is one advice you'd share with the listeners and imagine them as your mentees or your students? Because I know you you mentioned the teaching as well. Well, one of them is, is listening, like I just yes. said. Another one, of course, is about defining success for yourself. I think every writer, every creative person has to do that. I think the other one is about being very intentional about Knowing when to stop and when to start, which is kind of what we've been talking about all along, right? But ultimately, it comes back to one avenue of listening that I think is sort of like its own topic unto itself is self-reflection. Mm. And that's another thing that we're not really taught. But like, you know, for me, like uh, when I sit down to write, especially if I'm feeling a little clogged or just not in the right mood for it, I'll write a journal entry first. And and it won't be anything deep. It'll literally just be like, all right, feeling kind of clogged, but I'm proud I did this yesterday, or I feel like crap because I didn't do that yesterday, whatever. And sometimes I'll stop and force myself to just listen to a whole song all the way through. Mm. And it's things like that that I've learned to do for myself because I've given myself the space to be self-reflective and to understand my own process and to know that it changes, just like your ideas of success change. All Everything changes, right? Yeah. And so you have to track it. If you're not self-reflective, it will change without you and you will be stuck doing the old thing and it won't be working for you. And you'll be wondering why you have to be able to check in with yourself. And for me, like one of the ways I've done that is by keeping a journal and just tracking that, not even tracking, that's too kind of like numerical type of word. You're just getting your thoughts out there. You may never read it, you know, you may destroy it and that's still valid. It's that you're, you have the ability to say like, this is what's going on for me. And here's, you know, why maybe or maybe not. I don't know. Here's what's working. Here's what's not working. Here's what made me feel like shit. And here's what, what I'm going to do about it or not. You know, like all those things are just very basic. It's not gossipy. It's not personal even. It's just the sheer truth of like, what is your process? That alone is transformative in how you do things. For those who are really stuck with their work in progress and really are just struggling with their writing goals, what is one advice or assignment that you would give them this week or the next week, whenever they're hearing this, that's a manageable step for them to get them closer to accomplishing that writing goal? Hmm. One thing I've noticed is that certain things that you think are set in stone can be changed and can totally turn around how you're thinking about a project, right? Mm -hmm. But there's certain things that actually can't change. But 
that's only one thing at the end of the day, and that's the heart of your project. I think a lot about this concept that there's a novelist, Turkish novelist named Orhan Pamuk, who I love, who talks about this idea that every novel has a secret heart. And you can hear it. It's like pulse get louder as you get closer to the end of the novel. And that's what we understand as like the climax, right? It's like the truth of that novel that it's really trying to say what it's been saying all along comes to the surface or comes closer to the surface as you go deeper into the book. And that's true in process too. As you're writing the book, you learn about the novel through the process of creating a book, mm -hmm. right? And whatever that secret heart is, it's not the same thing as like a tagline or like a comp or like an elevator pitch. Like it's not any of those things because the whole point is, you can't say it in a sentence. You can't like just pitch it to somebody. It's what takes the whole book to say. So you shouldn't actually be able to just like summarize it quickly. It's mm -hmm. one of those things. It's like, it's hard to really wrap your head around. So it's good that you don't know exactly what it is, but you have a sense of what it is. And the process of writing the book is finding out what it is. That's your true north. That's your compass. And you're always moving towards that. And if you know what it is deep down, again, not in a way that you can easily explain, but you just know then that's what allows you to actually be very flexible with everything else in the book. Like with Shadow Saber, I knew even that early on in my career, I knew I just wanted to tell this story about like kids of color in Brooklyn having this magical, exciting life and adventure. And like, that was it. That's all I needed to do with that book. There was an agent who, you know, really loved the book, but he was like, he was like, you know, the second two thirds are kind of a mess, but the first third is incredible. And if you want to take it back to that first third and then re revamp the mythology and the, and the everything else, like I would love to read this again. Wow. And because I knew that the heart of this book was what it was, I was able to do that. Like it, it didn't feel like crushing to have that kind of like very massive change happen. It felt like, okay, let me try a different book with the same foundation. And so I did that. And that's what I mean is like, sometimes it's like the things you think are really important actually aren't. And you can find that out by really honing in on what is really important. So think about that and really map out like what matters about your book and, and what doesn't. And one thing that doesn't, pick it and change it. Oh. And it might be like the format of a book. It might be that you, you're actually writing a graphic novel, mm. but you haven't realized it yet. Or sometimes it'll be that you think that that'll be the process, right? Oh, I think it's a book. Oh, no, it's a graphic novel. Let me do it as a graphic novel. And then like a month later, you're like, wait, this is a book. But you had to dislodge something in your spirit yes. that would let you figure out, you know, in the plot, like, oh, wait, I needed to see it visually so that I could keep going, right? Yes. Like I've, I've known writers go through that exact process. So you can't get stuck on shit. You know, especially if you're not under contract, right? Mm. Like if you're writing a book to try to get the book out there, like who cares? Like you don't have to make it this format of that. So take advantage of that fact and be playful with it. Be flexible with the things that can be flexible so that you can be committed to the things that matter the most. So damn good. Oh my gosh. Okay. Give us a book or a few books that is your ultimate favorite, Ooh. whether it's craft advice or just novels that you feel like really impacted your own storytelling or will impact the generations for better storytelling or TV shows and movies that our listeners should check out to better and improve their storytelling? Well, what I just mentioned, Pet by Akweke Meze is definitely one of the best books I've just ever. Like it's so, it's really short too. It's a really slim book and there's so much in there. It's a speculative young adult novel there's so much that it does just by taking certain truths as true and then moving forward from them if that makes sense because i feel like a lot of stories waste time on things that like a lot of us already know but they feel like they have to establish for other people 
and you can sort of feel it when the book is catering to other people that like need to be caught up on things like the basic humanity of certain people. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. a Quake doesn't waste time with that bullshit. They just jump right in and begin, you know, fucking us up in the best way. Wow. And it's about monsters and it's about politics and, you know, all my sweet spots, which is part of why I love it. That book is phenomenal. And then there's one that I want to bring up because it's one that I read when I was coming up by a writer who's still out there doing great work, Nalo Hopkinson. And it's called Midnight Robber. And it's her first book that she wrote. I think it's the second book she put out. And it's a Caribbean science fiction fantasy novel. That if, actually, if you read it, it's, there's a lot of plot points that are similar to the, to the movie Avatar. Okay. But first of all, this came out first. Yeah. And it's done in a much more like thoughtful, anti-colonial, mm, complicated mm-hmm. way. But it's having a lot of those same conversations about what it means to enter into a community that's not yours, what it means to fight off, you know, bad guys, what it means to heal from your own trauma, you know, through the hard work of, of being in community. It's these deep conversations, but in this really magical, weird, Caribbean-inspired world on another planet. And it's so cool. It's just such a great book. And everyone should read it. Oh, wow. Okay. Those are great, great, great books that you mentioned. Uh, We'll definitely have that listed in your show notes page. So it's easier for everyone to click on. All right. So let's wrap it up with this last question, which is what are you most excited for right now? Oh, man, that is a great question. I mean, I I just like, it's the kids, man. Like it really is the kids. (laughs) I just, you know, um, I do events all over the country and my books are about dinosaurs and kids of color, you know, flying on pterodactyl back to like fight, fight racism. And there's characters of all across the gender spectrum. And, you know, there's just like so much happening and it's so cool to just see kids be so excited about work, not just mine, but like so much of the work out there right now that is pushing all those boundaries and doing these great things. There's so many young writers, you know, like Tommy, like Zoraida, you know, changing the world, like pushing boundaries, like telling their stories, their way, not apologizing for it, you know, just being very real and also very imaginative and all of that stuff. Like there's just so much energy right now around that. And the world is changing very fast and that can be very terrifying. But I find solace in the stories that we are telling and the way that they're being received and the way that that itself, you can watch the world change with those stories. You know, like it, it, we're so used to being lectured to about incremental change and being patient and like letting things play out slowly over policy and decades of time and all this other shit, which, yes, sometimes that is true. And we do need to be patient in our you know analysis and everything else. And also like we are trying to survive and people's lives are very much on the line in very real ways. So it's amazing to see storytelling change so radically in the past couple of years and also know there's so much work to be done. But I have hope because the change is happening in front of our faces. Brilliant, brilliant way to wrap this up, (laughs) Daniel. Oh my God. All right. Please tell everyone where they can find you online to say hello. For sure. Mostly I'm on Twitter. It's DJ Older, D-J-O-L-D-E-R. I'm on Instagram as Daniel Jose One. My website is my full name.net, Daniel Jose Older.net. All my books are available there. You can also find on that website, um, I still have up the archive of my ambulance blog. It's a section called Ambulance Stories, and it's wild. And that wraps up my conversation with Daniel Jose Older. Daniel, thank you so much for this conversation. I am in awe of you as a storyteller and how you take risks in your career. 
Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Daniel on Twitter at DJ Older and on Instagram at Daniel Jose One. Thank you so much to my team, Andor Sperling, who takes care of our audio post-production for editing this episode from start to finish. And thank you to Rachel Colbert for the written content that goes along with every episode. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not this Thursday, but the one after that.